You're listening to ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Carol Harridan. Dr. Harridan is Vice President of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and I'm speaking to her today from London, England. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Dr. Harridan has a special interest in the quality of care of patients and also in patient safety. To begin with, Dr. Harridan, could you tell me a little bit about IHI and how it began and what its vision is for the future? Certainly. IHI actually began as a group of thoughtful clinicians coming together trying to think about quality. It was new on the horizon, and a number of people, including Don Borwick, the CEO of the Institute, came together and then found that, in fact, the approaches used in engineering could be applied to healthcare, applied together uh, as a little freestanding group for a Hartford Foundation grant to test whether these engineering approaches could be used well in healthcare. They paired a hospital CEO with a Baldrige Award-winning company, and in fact, they did extremely well. And that group became the first board of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Don Berwick became its CEO. They tried to disband, and the Hartford Foundation said, no, 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 take this money, form a company, clearly a not-for-profit company, clearly uh, healthcare needs uh, improvement. So that's the beginning of the Institute. So that's where we began, and we've been um, moving quickly ever since. So the Institute's vision and mission really is to improve the health and health care of people worldwide. We're a not-for-profit organization based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we work around the world uh, in sub-Saharan Africa on HIV-AIDS with the Gates Foundation on improving outcomes for patients under five in, in Rwanda and Ghana. And uh, we work in South America, all through Europe, where I currently am, and, of course, the United States. You know, because you're a global company and are dealing with quality, do you have variants or problems from country to country or hospital to hospital geographically? You know, I think there is as much variation between hospitals as there is between countries. Yes, every country has its different issues. But most of them are political and have a lot to do with both the politic of the country, stability particularly in Africa, but also in financing and organization of healthcare. So here in the UK, uh, the incentives are quite different than they are in the United States for clinicians. So uh, this is a, the NHS where it is very central and everybody is employed in healthcare by the NHS. There is no individual uh, healthcare organizations like there are in the, in the United States that, that have their own mission and vision and marketing, et cetera. So uh, there is no competition here, for instance, which is quite a different driver in the U.S. So, yeah, I see a fair amount of variation. I know that you've had a campaign called 100,000 Lives, and now you have a 5 million live campaign beginning December 06 and ending December 08. Could you tell me a little bit about that? The 100,000 Lives campaign was looking uh, to reduce the mortality, uh, the unnecessary mortality of 100,000 lives. So we were trying to distinguish, as we've been doing for quite a while now, the differentiation between the end of life's journey, the natural end of life's journey. We all are going to die, and some will die in hospitals. That's as it should be. And then there's the speeding up of that process by patients who die unnecessarily. They were admitted to the hospital with non-fatal diagnoses, should have recovered and did not. So it's differentiating those two. We were looking for those changes in healthcare that we knew that we'd spent a lot of time working on and seen great results that if you implemented those, you could actually impact mortality. So that was the 100,000 Lives campaign. The 5 Million Lives campaign is looking at reducing the harm for 5 million patients. 
and that is we know that as patients enter the acute care setting, it's also true in the outpatient, but we're focusing uh, this round on uh, primarily the acute care setting, that uh, harm occurs to patients. And we often think this is the same as error, and really error is quite a small subset of the actual harm that occurs to patients. A great deal of harm are things that we just think, well, that just happens. We haven't developed reliable systems. A great example is that an enormous number of patients bleed from anticoag, our anticoagulation medicine, and we pretty much accept that a certain number will iatrogenically, and in fact, we know we can reduce that number enormously. If we have the INR presented to us in a way that allows us to stabilize our treatment instead of reacting to peaks and valleys, on variation in the INR day-to-day. So that's just an example, but there's a great amount of harm that happens to patients that we're trying to reduce by 5 million. Well, we said it's a two-year program and it's ending. You've just finished your first year, and I know that this is maybe premature, but do you have any data you could tell us about the first year of this program? We have a number of hospitals collecting uh, harm. We have a subset of hospitals who we're using as a test bed. We know that To collect the data, we have a tool called the Global Trigger Tool. Clinicians look at the charts retrospectively, and they're looking for a series of triggers. When these triggers occur, for instance, an INR under four, we might uh, look very carefully. Then we go back to that section of the chart and say, just because a trigger occurred, in fact, did harm occur? And we see, yes, in fact, the patient bled, or yes, in fact, the patient had an embolic event. So we then mark those down as adverse events. So right now, we've got a number of hospitals who are doing this, and the data is not in yet. Well, let me ask you this. You can't help but read the newspaper, especially in the United States, about criticism of the quality that patients are getting in hospitals. Why do doctors think they're doing so much better than apparently statistics seem to show? Probably two reasons. One, they don't get a great deal of individual feedback. So uh, without that, they don't see patients dropping dead in front of them left and right. So, in fact, why wouldn't they think that things are going well? Uh, They get no data to the contrary. So there's a real data problem, first of all. Second of all, uh, we call it the tyranny of small numbers. And that is, if you're a doctor and you're prescribing medications, you're prescribing potentially hundreds of medications a week. Your adverse event or error rate is very small, very small, as an individual clinician. But the hospital is looking at that number in aggregate. They perhaps employ 500 physicians. So even at a very small rate that you experience, and you're thinking, what is all the hullabaloo about? I just don't see this, or I see it so infrequently. But the problem is the hospital sees it magnified times 500. And so when you look at the aggregate rate of harm, it's actually quite high. It's much higher than you'd expect in a reliable organization or reliable industry. But it's quite small. It's experienced by the clinician is enormously small and therefore probably overblown in their minds. The emergency room often is filled with people who are sitting on gurneys waiting. There's a tremendous bottleneck, and this is our first contact with health care for many people, especially those who are underserved or don't have insurance. Could you comment on what can be done about this image that we're projecting to the public? Well, truly, there are several things. The first is, anytime you're dealing with a bottleneck, you have to move back up to try to find where the problem began. So what we know with our EDs or our emergency departments is all we're seeing is we're seeing a reflection of the general health and health care of the population. And that is we have increasing numbers of people who do not have health insurance, and the only way for them to access health care is through the emergency department. So as we see that number increase, 
Uh, we see small employers being unable to afford health insurance, et cetera, and individuals being unable to afford it as well. We're going to see an ever more burgeoning burden put on the emergency department to be the health care system instead of the emergency department it was meant to be. So there's our first problem. And the other is, if we again, if we look further out, here's another problem that we see in working in flow. We've done a great deal of this work at the Institute. When you look at flow, you find that there are certain predictable times, dates and times, that patients will come into the emergency department. In fact, all of this is known. There is a technique called queuing theory that comes from engineering that predicts arrival rates for what appears to be unpredictable rates of arrival. So, in fact, they're not unpredictable. If you went back and you were to show me your data for the last year using your emergency room, I would be able to use that emergency room data and quite accurately predict this time next year about how many you're going to see in about what time of day and about what kind of diagnosis. This is quite knowable. We aren't choosing to use that information to control our destiny. So there's two things. There's the increasing flow of patients coming out of a society that is not engaging them in any preventative health at all. And secondly, it's how we manage them when they come through the door. So it is the first time that they see us. The, the, the emergency department feels as though it's the problem when, in fact, it rarely is the problem. It is almost always the end of the bottleneck. The bottleneck is up in front of it, and that is patients cannot get in, admitted quickly enough from the emergency room to keep the flow going. So gurneys become full, patients sit, and frequently they sit not because they haven't been seen in the ED, but because they cannot move forward. So there's typically two big problems. There's the problem of solving emergency room flow, and that is time to being seen, time for diversion, time for a left, what we call left without being seen, in fact, those people who just despair and finally give up and leave even after they've registered, those are things that must be dealt with inside the emergency room by improving emergency room flow. Those are all absolutely manageable. The last is one that the emergency room cannot manage, and they cannot manage the patients going forward. So until you have a system of flow, it feels as though it's an emergency room problem. It's not. It's a symptom of the problem because the patient simply cannot move forward. They can't get up onto the uh, critical care because critical care can't get their patients off critical care to the floor. The floor can't get their patients off to the outpatient. So everyone has a problem. It all dominoes right back to the emergency department where we experience it in the extreme. I'd like to thank Dr. Carol Herodin, who's been our guest today. She's vice president of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We've been talking to her from London, and we've been discussing improving quality in the United States and globally. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you for listening.